we started to think through who would we like to invite to be your keynote speaker? Who could challenge you to imagine your impact? Who embodies some of these themes of economic, social, environmental impact? And as we thought about it, um, we really wanted to find someone who is local, who is involved in the local business community, who's found this pathway in life, and could, could challenge you. And, and I'm thrilled to say that not only have we succeeded in that aim, but we're also proud to announce that our keynote speaker, Bill Stevenson, is also a great example of one of those MBAs from Duke who have an outrageous ambition to make a difference. So Bill is a member of the Duke MBA class of 1996, and he manages corporate social investments for Lenovo, which he likes to point out as kind of a 21st century way of saying corporate philanthropy. But I don't think it's just philanthropy, and you'll, you'll see what I mean in a second. So Bill's job is to create a culture of giving at Lenovo that not only has an impact on society, but it also aligns with Lenovo's corporate strategy. In his work at Lenovo and in his blog that I would highly recommend to you, The Heart of Business, and it's a blog in which he grapples on topics of social entrepreneurship, climate change, uh, entrepreneurship, microfinance, philanthropy, sustainability. In his work and in his thought leadership, he's an advocate for a different approach to, culture, to corporate philanthropy. It's really an approach that's closer to investing than to charity. It's an approach that's more entrepreneurial, it's more sustainable, and I would say has even greater impact. And actually, I think you could think of it as not just philanthropy, but a form of venture philanthropy, drawing upon the same skills that he built here during his time at, at Fuqua. And in fact, it was actually Bill that recommended to the CEO of Lenovo that they dedicate 1% of all earnings to their corporate philanthropy. Because as he and others say, if you're not putting in at least 1% of earnings, can you really say that you're you know, practicing corporate social responsibility? So let me tell you just a little bit about Bill and a little bit about their work there uh, before we bring home to, to talk with you. So to maximize the impact of Lenovo's philanthropic dollars, rather than sponsoring these long-standing major charities, which they've done some of that too, but really the approach that Bill tries to bring in is to identify, partner with, and support indigenous social entrepreneurs, creating innovative homegrown solutions to their own challenges. In this way, really what he's doing is investing in startups, helping them catalyze their growth, helping them scale their social impact. Lenovo shares its technology and knowledge with ambitious entrepreneurs in underdeveloped countries, helps, them provide, helps by providing the tools and resources necessary to start their own businesses and reach their goals. And you know, by doing this, by working with the entrepreneurs of these communities, they're having not only an impact on these entrepreneurs and their families, but on entire communities around the world. And in fact, through Bill's leadership, he's, he's challenged the company to, by the year 2010, to commit to supporting 10,000 entrepreneurs around the world. It's incredible. Through his leadership, Lenovo was even one of the earliest corporate sponsors of Kiva. I know all of you talked about Kiva, who are first years just a few, day, a few weeks ago, probably last week, in, in one of your first classes when you talked about microfinance and the Kiva model. Um, what Lenovo's been doing is, you know, in addition to giving grants, they're also providing technology and support. So for example, Lenovo donates laptops and other computers to Kiva, which Kiva distributes some of the laptops to their, their microfinance partners, uses some of them internally, some of them for their field representatives, and there's also operating grants and, and other support that, that they give. Now, we could go on, and, and Bill, I'm sure, will tell you a little bit more about Lenovo's corporate philanthropy, but I think it's also important to say that Bill also builds this into his personal life. Um, he's doing more to achieve impact even outside of his day job. So he serves on a number of nonprofit boards, and one of the ones I think is particularly interesting right now, he's on the advisory panel for the X Prize Foundation's Global Entrepreneurship Prize. 
And if you're not familiar with that, that's seeking to find methods to catalyze profit-generating firms to address major developments in agriculture, capital, education, health, and water. And the goal of the competition is really to highlight the most scalable enterprises that create wealth and uplift the widest set of stakeholders um, from poverty. Drawing on a long-standing passion for music, and, and maybe he'll even tell you that he says he invented toe-tapping. I'll, I'll let him get into that. Drawing on this long-standing passion for music, Bill is actually the creator of Carolina Hope Fest. You might have heard this uh, advertised on uh, NPR in the mornings. Carolina Hope Fest is a music and art celebration that benefits Beacon of Hope, which brings in women and children from a slum near Nairobi in Kenya. These women and children are affected by HIV AIDS, and this, this provides um, a broad range of services. And the idea is not simply to give them medicine or food or just financial help, but Beacon of Hope does everything it possibly can to help them be healthy, self-reliant, and, and develop aspirations for the future. And in fact, last year's festival alone raised enough money to create and fund a whole new medical clinic. And the good news is you all are invited because eight days from today, not tomorrow, but next Sunday is the next Carolina Hope Fest. 2 to 10 o'clock at the Coca Booth Amphitheater. I think we stuff things in your packets with the information. You're going to have a great time, excellent music. You can pick up tickets at Bean Traders or at Ticketmaster. And finally, let me tell you that I'm happy to say that Bill has had an impact on his own family. I love this. Uh, Bill tells me that recently he garnered the coveted Best Daddy in the Whole Wide World Award. <laughs> That's just from his daughter, Emma Grace, for his performance on Dessert Night last week which he just demonstrated outstanding judgment by letting her have dessert without first finishing her Brussels sprouts. <laughs> so as we welcome Bill, let me just, just bring you back to the theme here today. Imagine your impact. So imagine it. Imagine delivering technology and knowledge to 10,000 entrepreneurs worldwide. Imagine seeking out the most innovative social entrepreneurs and indigenous entrepreneurs and helping them scale their impact. Imagine going to a company in which you convince your CEO to spend even 1% of its earnings to corporate social investments. Imagine what you could achieve with that. Please join me in welcoming a leader of consequence and one of our own, Bill Stevenson. Thank you. I had a, a, a lot to say today, but it, uh, it was just all said by him. Um, I have to do, do have to make a couple of corrections, though, in, in what's been said. Um, uh, the Hope Fest in your flyer, it's Saturday, not Sunday. Do not show up on Sunday because you'll be at some completely other event that really has no impact whatsoever on, on the broader world, um, except yourselves. So, oh, and the other error, well, I'll get to this in a second. I, you got to tell me where you got the number 10,000 entrepreneurs because it's 100,000. Um, so wherever that was, whatever website, if that's on my blog, I got to fix that right away because it's not nearly impressive, just off by a factor of 10. Um, and so imagine the impact of 10,000, but really now imagine the impact of 100,000 entrepreneurs being supported by Lenovo. So I need to tell you, first of all, like who I am, you know, where I, all my sort of CSR cred and all that, and you know, why I am where I am. And uh, it started off, I was sitting in your seats 14 years ago in 1994 and sort of wondering what I was going to do with my life. I wasn't one of these super uh, high-achieving people before going to business school. Not the high-achieving person you see before you now, I suppose. Um, uh, so I didn't really have much direction, and it was very important to, to attend this day. After leaving Fuqua, uh, I went directly to IBM uh, and spent four years there um, in a variety of roles, uh, mostly in, in marketing and marketing strategy. Um, 
And then I went to chase my dot-com dream. This was the late 90s, early 2000s, recall, when, uh, when this kind of thing was possible. Uh, I went to a company um, that had raised, we had raised $140 million in investment capital. This was possible back in 1999. This was a, a, uh, a record that I'm sure still stands for the amount of venture capital raised by any startup in North Carolina. Um, and we blew it all in 18 months with absolutely nothing to show for it, um, which was also pretty common in 1999-2000. Um, so naturally, we went bankrupt, and so this was the year 2001, and then airplanes started to fly into buildings, and you know things really went south from there, and the economy didn't really do very well. And so I had the experience of being, for three or four years, really an, an entrepreneur, a tremendously unsuccessful entrepreneur for a long time. Um, living really, in some cases, just above the, the poverty line, or what we consider to be the poverty line in this country. Until, thank goodness, I got back to IBM at a point where they were just making the transition to, to Lenovo. Um, now, if I ask you, first of all, what, what Lenovo is, actually, this has probably changed over the last three weeks, but what, usually when I ask that question, somebody raises their hand and says, they're the company that bought IBM's PC business. And that is absolutely true. Lenovo bought IBM's PC business in, in 2004. Um, however, their history starts a long time before that. They actually are, were a 20-year-old company at that point, and I'll give you a little bit of their history in a second. But first, I really need to commend you because in 1994, when I was sitting in this room on this day in Durham, that, well, we did have a day in Durham then. It was, a, it was called something different, and it wasn't sponsored by Case because Case didn't exist. Um, it was required. We had to go to it. I, I, was, I was stunned to find out that this is optional for you guys now. And I'm even more stunned to find out that you're all here, um, despite the fact that it's optional, right? I mean, did you, guys, did you guys understand that it was optional, first of all? <laughs> because I'll tell you, I mean, things have changed a lot. In 1994, if it were optional for us to come to this thing, I don't think we would have been here. I don't think I would have come, in some respects. So things have really changed a lot. It seems like you guys are really more in tune with the power of business, the, po the fact that business is the most powerful institution on the planet, for good or for ill. And you seem to be motivated, this generation of business school students really seems to be motivated to make sure that's for good. That's a very, very positive trend. But my message to you today is that may not be enough. Because you have just entered a culture, the culture that you've entered now and that you're going to probably live in for the rest of your lives is a very powerful one and may really pull you away from that. So let me talk a bit about that culture. You are now in a culture, maybe you have been for a long time, but certainly you are right now, in a culture of achievement, a culture of wealth, a culture of power and influence. And I have to point out, you know, not a, none of that is on the face of it bad. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. In fact, they can all be very, very good. But this culture, it can really pull you to do things that you never thought that you were going to do. It can pull you to concern yourselves with things that maybe right now sitting here you don't really concern yourself with. They aren't, aren't a concern for you yet. It can pull you to make choices that might even be irrational, that you otherwise wouldn't make. And these choices are really going to be important. You know, one thing I remember about the keynote speaker in our day in Durham, 
Um, I have to be honest with you, I don't remember anything about it. I don't remember anything about him. I don't know his name. I vaguely remember what company he came from. He spoke for maybe an hour. I'm going to keep it a lot shorter. Um, and there was only one line that I remember, but it's a really, really important line. What he said was, you, and this is true of you as well, you are among the 5% of the smartest people on the planet right now. And the choices you make are going to be really important to the other 95% of us who are going to have to live with the consequences of those choices. So think about that for a second. The choices that you make are going to be important, but really not just for you. It's going to be important for the world, what you decide to do with yourselves. So you can't let this culture make your choices for you. This culture is powerful. It is so powerful that I will tell you, you will agree with me, that money will not make you happy. And yet, you will still chase after it, just like I did. I will tell you, and you will agree with me, that being promoted to the executive level of some multi-billion dollar corporation will not make your life better. In fact, in many cases, it could make your life worse. You'll agree with me, you're still going to do it, just like I did. I will tell you, and you will agree with me, that spending more time in the office and away from your family so that you can give them more things will not make them happier. I will tell you this, you'll agree with me, and yet you'll still do it just like I have. That's how powerful this culture is. I'm going to quote from Wordsworth here. I'm married to an English teacher, so when I went through this, uh, um, this speech with her last night, she said, oh, you've got to mention Wordsworth right here. So, <laughs> so here was, I'm, I'm going to talk about Wordsworth. Just a, a quote from a sonnet. The world is too much with us, late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. So in order to sort of mitigate the impact that this culture is going to have in your life, I you know, recall that at our day in Durham, I only remember that one line from, from what the keynote speaker said. Hopefully you remember more. And I'm going to give you some examples of people who have made countercultural decisions and how that has impacted the world and perhaps encourage you to do the same. Okay, nobody really knows what this is. This is the first Lenovo office uh, ever in 1984 Beijing. Uh, I'm going to start talking about Lenovo and how this was uh, actually a countercultural uh, beginning itself. Because this was, again, 1984 Beijing, there was no culture of entrepreneurship at that time in Beijing. Certainly is now. Um, and yet these 11 ragtag entrepreneurs got together and decided to create this company called Lenovo it's with a very, very small investment from the government. Uh, and in a, a pretty short time, they've really achieved some great things in uh, job creation, societal transformation. They and a lot of entrepreneurs have transformed Chinese society for, for better and for worse. And we'd like to think that Lenovo has a bright future. But that's one story, and I think it's a good countercultural one. Let's talk about a parallel story, and this is Jennifer, Jennifer Wissigie. She also is an entrepreneur, more recently, in a, uh, in a developing country, uh, who started with a very, very small investment, and in a very short time has made great achievements in job creation and societal transformation. And I think she has a bright future. Tell you more about Jennifer. So this is her story. 
She lives in Sangha, Uganda. Uh, she's one of many, many people on the face of the earth who uh, at one time lived in, in poverty, in extreme poverty, but she got a small loan, $171, from Opportunity International, which is one of our microfinance partners. Uh, she built a business, she expanded the business. Now today, she employs 17 people, supporting 57 total in families. And she also managed to take five AIDS orphans off the street. So now if I had given you $171, or taken it myself, this is not about you necessarily, uh, taken $171 and tried to maximize the societal impact of that money, I perhaps would have been able to buy maybe a decent uh, business lunch. I mean, I don't know what I would have done, but I certainly wouldn't have been able to take five AIDS orphans off the street. Now, it goes beyond that because Jennifer, because she was able to, uh, to succeed with the help of Opportunity International, uh, she was elected to town council. And prior to her being on town council, women weren't actually allowed to own property in her, in her village, in her town. And so she's been able to change all that. So our Hope Through Entrepreneurship Program, we support people like Jennifer through this program. And uh, the goal is actually to support 100,000 entrepreneurs over the course of the next couple of years. Uh, and as Matt mentioned, we've uh, dedicated 1% of our corporate income to do this. And I have to tell you that leadership is really important, right? Um, it's going to take a new class of business leaders, I think, in order to, uh, to get businesses to accept their global responsibility and take it seriously as more than just a marketing campaign. So, and I'm really proud to say that when I approached Bill Emilio, our C CEO, about um, dedicating 1% of our income to this kind of thing. It was totally an easy sell. It was just, it, it was a 15 minute conversation. He said yes, and it's, that's because it, he reflects this in his life too. He and his wife, Jamie, have started schools in Cambodia for dis disadvantaged children. But remember this whole story. The arc of the story begins with Lenovo in 1984 and ends with Jennifer Musigie and 100,000 entrepreneurs that we're going to be supporting. So the countercultural choices of a few entrepreneurs in 1984 Beijing has had an impact not only on Jennifer, but on really 100,000 entrepreneurs. Just that little choice that they made with a small investment, they're gonna be helping 100,000 people. So if that's the case, if these ragtag entrepreneurs in Beijing can have that much impact, millions of dollars invested in, in entrepreneurship in developing countries, imagine the impact you guys are gonna be able to have. Now let me introduce you to Jane. This is Beacon of Hope. Um, this is a sort of a social entrepreneur that, uh, that we and, and my family actually support. Um, she was a businesswoman in Nairobi, a very successful one, a wealthy one, um, who made the choice back uh, a number of years ago that, that she needed to respond to the uh, pandemic of AIDS in her, in her home country, uh, really with the, the people around her. So she bought a, or she rented a small space and where, where now she teaches women how to weave uh, traditional African tapestries, which we then import here to the United States and other places through 10,000 villages and help them make a living. So this is a social entrepreneur who uses entrepreneurship as a solution to, to poverty. Um, we support it, of course, through the Carolina Hope Fest, which is Saturday, August 30th, not Sunday, August 31st, featuring Colby Calais this year, by the way. Um, so this is our way of supporting this sort of inventive social entrepreneurship, this countercultural choice that Jane has made uh, in her community. So Jane's impact not only does she serve the women around her that are in desperate need and children? She has inspired people across the ocean, from you know, music lovers like me to artists like Colby Calais and Indigo Girls and Amy Mann, to respond to the challenge of AIDS in Africa. What's more, a new nonprofit has sprung up out of this 
called Africa Rising, which is based here in Chapel Hill, which also seeks to create more connections between African social entrepreneurs who are close to the problems and close to the issues and close to the culture and are solving their own problems, their own addressing their own challenges, and Westerners who can support them. So in, in a sense, they're looking for more Lenovos to support more Janes. And if Jane can have that kind of impact, imagine the kind of impact that you can have. This is the impact of the Carolina Hope Fest. Beacon of Hope has moved from here uh, to here. So this is more than just going from nice, humble beginnings to posh surroundings. This is a place, this is still, believe it or not, in the middle of slum surrounding Nairobi, um, where um, they could serve a whole bunch more people. I think they can go from serving 500 women a week to something like 1,500. Um, plus, it just looks a heck of a lot nicer, right? Um, I think it's notable that, and I should tell you this, that my family started the Hope Fest back in 2005. And at the time, I mentioned that we were not really doing all that well as a family, right? We were um, this ragtag entrepreneur who's trying, to, trying very hard to sort of scratch out a living in the midst of a very bad economy. And in the midst of all that, um, somehow found a way to start this thing. So if I, in, on the brink of poverty, can have this kind of impact on people around the world, Imagine what you're going to be able to do. Imagine the impact you can have. Another example, and this, was, this is a dangerous one, because I, I realized that there's a, a woman in the room that actually um, knows a bit about this. Is Julia here? You can't miss her. She looks like she's about to have a baby any before I'm done. And yeah, there she is. So this is about my mother's family, and Julia knows my mother. Um, I'm going to talk about the saga of Uncle Fred, not his real name. Um, my mother grew up in, in uh, rural western Pennsylvania, a real uh, a sort of Appalachian family. Um, it's very different probably from many of the places that you came from, it's certainly different from, from where I eventually wound up coming from. And I reconnected with that family. I haven't really been with them for maybe 30 years. We weren't very close. And so I drove my mother recently to my grandmother's funeral, her mother's funeral. Uh, back in February, and I reconnected with these people, and it was a real delight to do so, uh, to see you know, where their lives have gone, to remember you know, when we were kids and, and things like that, but it's just like stepping into a different world sometimes, right, when you, when you cross cultural boundaries like this, and it is a cultural boundary to go back there. Um, she grew up in a place that, um, well, I won't tell you too much about where she grew up, because I don't want to embarrass her, um, but let me tell you about Uncle Fred. She had nine siblings. And the stories that I heard at this funeral were, were, were all kind of, kind of the same, right? They all had elements of this to them. Um, but the best is Uncle Fred, because Uncle Fred, um, well, just let me tell you, he was um, driving in a car with uh, a woman who I guess you would call his girlfriend. He was married at the time, by the way, so when he was driving with his girlfriend, who was also married to somebody else, <laughs> but at that time pregnant with Fred's baby. So they were driving along, and uh, another car came up beside them and forced them off the road. Turns out it was that woman's husband. And he got out of the car and shot Fred in the chest through the window with a gun. Now, all you international students, we don't all have guns in America. <laughs> so this is, this again, this is cross-cultural. This is, this is elsewhere. There are no guns in Durham, I hear. Um, so, then, of course, the woman in the passenger seat uh, got out and tried to run away, 
and he shot her in the back. Um, and then in some bizarre sort of fit of remorse, he got, he got out of his, you know, went around the car, went and grabbed his wife, who he had just shot, and carried her back into the car that Fred was driving. Um, and Fred was apparently okay, even though he had a hole in his chest, okay enough to drive to the hospital. So imagine this, this scene, the back seat with the woman who, who had just been shot and the man who had just shot her and the driver who had been shot being forced to drive to the hospital um, so that those two could be, uh, so that the doctors could attend to, to his wife. When they got to the hospital, he went in with the gun again. I guess no metal detectors on hospitals in, uh, in uh, Emlinton, Pennsylvania. Um, and forced the doctors to work on his wife, to save his wife's life, but forced everybody to stay away from Fred, who had a hole in his chest. Um, now, this is, this is enough of a story to sort of give you an idea of how rough this culture is, but it gets better, or it goes on from here. It probably doesn't get better. <laughs> um, so after this ordeal, Fred did go back to his wife, who, quite naturally, was pregnant by another man. Um, so th this, this is the good part of the story. I mean, this is sort of the, the heroic part, where Fred uh, raised the, the resulting baby as if it were his own and, and uh, you know, until she was about 13 years old, at which time she accused him of sexually molesting her. So now Fred is in jail for sexually molesting his stepdaughter. Now, I learned this at the funeral um, from Fred's son, um, who I'll call Sean. Uh, and now, Sean, I, I was asking Sean if um, he had a chance to go visit his father in jail, and Sean said, no, I, uh, I really can't go there because they actually don't allow you to go visit somebody in prison when you've just gotten out yourself. So, again, this culture is rough. So, Sean um, had written some bad checks, and he, uh, at one point, apparently, he test drove a car uh, that he wanted to buy, and he liked it so much that he test drove it to Philadelphia, which is the other side of the state, and, uh, and, and tried to keep it. So he's in jail for that. And so the follow-up question naturally is, okay, well, where's your, um, where's your brother, uh, Fred, um, Fred Jr.? He said, well, Fred doesn't really come around me much anymore because uh, when I was in prison, uh, Fred got my wife pregnant. So, I mean, this is, this, is, this is all over the place, and I have to tell you that this is, this is the culture, this is uh, where they come from, it's just very, very rough. And who's the hero of this story? Um, <laughs> if there can be a hero in this story, and I actually think there can be, and I'm very proud to say that the, uh, the hero of this story, if I can get it to come up, is pictured here. Uh, this is my mom. And that's my wife, who's very happy that, uh, that she got out of that culture. So imagine my mother, a young girl, 15 years old. She recognized this was not an ideal culture in which to raise a family, right? So in 1959, this probably terrified young girl made the very difficult choice to, not only could she see beyond the culture that she lived in, which I'm going to encourage you to do in a second, not only could she see beyond it, but she had the strength to somehow leave it and go, I don't even know where. And I don't even know all the reasons why she did it, but she did it. And as a result, uh, my brothers and I were not raised in that culture. My brothers and I were not raised in this sort of rough and unhealthy environment. So if that young girl, who's now this woman, hadn't made that choice, that cross-cultural choice in 1959, where would I be now? Where would my children be now? If she can have this kind of impact on people's lives, imagine the impact that you can have in your life.
Dozens of people are thankful to her. So I also want to talk to you about some countercultural financial choices that uh, I'm not necessarily encouraging you to make, though. Feel free. Um, but I want to tell you what's possible, what people can do. And I'm going to tell you the story of Dr. X, and I'm not going to use his name because there's a, there's a chance that some of you either know him now or will meet him over the next two years while you're in, in, uh, in the area. So this is a lesson in, in asserting your power over money. Dr. X, back in the 1970s, realized that he was going to make a lot of money during the course of his life. He's a high-flying, still today, he's a very well-respected um, doctor internationally. And for one reason or another, he made the choice that, you know, I don't want my money to own me. I want to own my money. I want to tell it what to do. So he decided that he could live, and I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but I believe the story is he made $90,000 a year in the 70s, which was an obscene amount of money back then. And uh, he decided that he could live on 15. He and his family discussed it with his wife, and so the rest of it he just gave away. He gave away, and he's been doing that ever since. So for the last, you know, what is that, 40 years, he's been giving away some very, very significant part of his income. This reminds me of one of my, I won't say one of my favorite films, I don't even know if I recommend it, but sort of one of the films that sort of brings this to life to me is the movie Fight Club. Has anybody seen Fight Club by any chance? So I'm going to quote Tyler Durden here, those of you who know who that is. It's the things you own wind up owning you. It's only after you've lost everything that you're free to do anything. And we chase cars and clothes, working jobs we hate, to buy shit we don't need. So how did Dr. X not get caught in that? He became master of his money at a very young age, and for the next 40 years, he's in his 70s now or so, and he's been doing it ever since. And I'll tell you, he tells his money what to do. He sends his money to places where he knows it's going to do good. Instead of buying things that he doesn't need, or even taking a mortgage for a house that's more than even he could pay for, and having to then work to, to pay off that mortgage. So he avoided the fate of, of being mastered by his money. So how much money are you going to need? According to the, uh, to the website, uh, the uh, admissions website here at Fuqua, last year's class, when they graduated, had an average uh, income. This doesn't count bonuses or anything. Uh, does anybody know what, what the number is? How much money you're, you're likely to make when you get out? I'm sure you do. I mean, God, you do know how much. You wouldn't have come here, right? Somebody throw out a number. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like 105, 107. Where do you think that puts you sort of on the scale of humanity? How do you think that compares to people outside of this room? Any guesses, like where, what percentage, what percentile you're in? Top 2%. Top 2%? Okay, pretty close. So here, this is everybody in the world, from the poorest to the richest. And if you make $105,000 a year, this is going to be you right here. You're in the top 0.62% of wage earners on the face of the earth. And so you could say fairly that, you know, many of you who are Americans or, or Westerners who live in places that are more expensive to live, you know, that, that you need more money in, in America than you do in Uganda. Um, but you're also going to be in the top 5% of all wage earners in, in America. The richest country in the history of the world, you are among the richest 5% of those people. You are indiscernible from Bill Gates and Warren Buffett to everybody else on this list. 
Only 37 million people in the entire world of 7 billion are going to be wealthier than you are. And I challenge you to think about whether or not you really need all that. We're the weird ones. You know, the rest of the world does not live like us. We see these strange images from developing countries and poverty-stricken areas, and we think those are strange, but we're the weird ones. That is normal. We are strange. So is this an empowering message? Is this, does this make you think, what does this make you think? Does this make you think, I'm going to be able to buy lots and lots of stuff? <laughs> is that the exciting part of this? It might be. But also, this is a great responsibility. Look where you are on this list. It's a really powerful responsibility. If you are excited about the stuff that you're going to buy, you're going to be able to get from this, then you're perfectly in line with the culture that you've just entered, because the culture is going to pull you that way. You're going to compare yourself. You know, one of the, I think, worst human um, impulses is to compare yourself to others around you. So, but look, if you compare yourself to the people to the right of you, there aren't that many people to compare yourselves with. But that's what you're going to be doing, right? You're going to be saying to yourself, he has more money than I, he drives a nicer car, he has a bigger house, my mother doesn't love me because I'm not rich enough. You are rich enough. <laughs> you are definitely rich enough. And this is just your first year. I mean, this is going to go nowhere but up. Imagine the impact you can have being there on the rest of this. So I have some bad news. <laughs> And you're going to laugh because you think this is obvious, but one day when you're my age, you're going to wake up in the middle of the night and you're going to be in a cold sweat because it really hadn't struck you until then that there is going to be a world without you someday. It's a very strange thing for the psyche to comprehend and it is really terrifying, but you've got to get used to it. It's actually going to happen. And when you die, people will not have loved you more and they won't remember you more fondly because you made a lot of money or had power and influence. Your high school and college friends will not be impressed with how much money you make. They may seem like they are, but scratch the surface a little bit and they probably resent you for making this much money. <laughs> so you're all going to die. But meanwhile, I have to tell you <laughs> that you have nothing to fear. Um, things will almost certainly not go as badly for you in your careers as it went for me and my wife. We had a lot of humbling experiences over, the, over that time when we were, we were not doing so well, not doing well at all. We had the humbling experience of needing to take money from friends and family in order to sort of get by. We had the humbling experience of, um, oh, I should tell you, so that's not so bad, by the way. And that's sort of my message to you, that that's a humbling experience to need to depend on others to sort of make it, depending on what your definition of make it is. Um, but it was really a joy to them to be able to help their friend. And it was a joy to them to be able to help people in their family. People really enjoy giving, right? It's a good thing for them to do, as I think I've demonstrated in Dr. X's case. But in order for somebody to give, somebody has to receive. So I was the blessing to them by being the recipient of the, uh, the, the money that they wanted to give. And, you know, I'm sorry that I had to do it, but I did have to do it. And it's done. And, you know, it wasn't that bad. Um, I did have the humbling experience of having to go to the unemployment office, actually many times. And in one case, I actually had, I was required to take a class 
on um, uh, job search skills and resume building, you know, which I thought that you guys had covered here at Pukwa, but uh, apparently I needed the unemployment office to help me a little bit more. Um, that was a humiliating experience. It was very humbling, but you know what? It wasn't so bad. I'm here on the other side of it, and I was not alone when I was in it. There are plenty of other people there who are going through the same thing. It was not that bad. And speaking of impressing your high school friends, in the middle of all that, um, I had my 20th high school reunion. So you know what that's supposed to be like, right? You're supposed to go back and talk about how you've achieved all this stuff, right? And I got to go back and I saw, you know, one of the first people I saw was my ex-girlfriend. And um, how are things going? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, do, are you familiar with the poverty level in the United States? Because I'm kind of right there. Yeah. Um, but you know what, that, that too was not a bad experience. It wasn't so bad. I was, you know, it broke down barriers, you know, and if I had told them that I made $105,000, they would have resented me. So they wouldn't have liked me. So it's a, it, it's a good thing to be going through these things. My message to you, though, is things will not go that badly for you. And if they do, it's going to be all right. So imagine if you take this message. You know, I came out on the other side of this thing really a better person. You know, before this, I was really interested in my career at IBM, and I left IBM, to be quite honest with you, because I thought I was going to make a lot more money somewhere else, right? I was in the middle of the dot-com thing. People, other people were leaving IBM, and they were going to Red Hat, and people who I thought were absolute morons were millionaires overnight. And so I thought, well, I've got to do that, because I was comparing myself to them. I wasn't looking at, at, at how my life was and how, how, you know, I had a great marriage, and I had wonderful children, and I, had, I wanted more money. That was a bad decision, probably. It's turned out very, very well, I have to tell you, because um, I came out on the other side of this thing uh, obviously far more humble than, than I was when I went into it. Um, but also, I became more generous, if you can believe that. I was more generous in that situation where I didn't have any money than I was when I did, because when you have money, it starts to own you. Maybe you can do more. You know, if you just do what everybody else does in your culture, if you just make as much money as possible, that is exactly what the culture expects of you, and fine. But you really have the ability to do so much more. And remember, people will not remember you more fondly because you make more money, and because you had more power and more influence. By contrast, think of this young girl, 15 years old, this poor young girl in Emlinton, Pennsylvania, making the terrifying decision to leave her culture, to break out into something that she, did, she didn't have any idea what she was getting into. She was looking for something better. So when you compare yourselves to your culture, when you're on the far right of the thing, don't do that. Look at the whole thing. Look at where everyone is. Break out of your own culture. So how fondly do we think of my mother, you know, the, the, the 10 or 12 of us who, who now are benefiting from the decision, the cross-cultural decision she made to break out of her culture and to raise her family elsewhere. I tell you, when you die, people will not love you for having more money, but they will love you for having done something like this, because I can't tell you how thankful I am that my mother was able to do this terrifying thing and lead me and my family to a much, much better place, a place where we have an opportunity to, to really thrive. So thank you so much for the time. Um, to speak to you today. I know you've got to get on buses and go someplace. I also want to invite you to sort of join the conversation here uh, on lenoboblogs.com and Heart of Business and tell me, you know, I'm going to actually probably transcribe this, what I've said here today, into an entry and I want to, want to hear what you guys thought of it. 
you can uh, you know, do it anonymously and tell me that, boy, you're in insane, and uh, I, won't, I won't take it so badly. I just want to know, I, w I want you to join me in the conversation. So thank you so much for having me here today. Oh, yeah. I'll do that. Any questions? <laughs> I, I covered everything so completely and comprehensively that there, there, I've left no room for questions. Or maybe I covered a subject that you didn't anticipate. Yes? Yeah. Yes, it's a good question because, you know, um, when we extracted ourselves from IBM, who's very good at this kind of thing, right? They're very thoughtful, IBM is, about how, um, how philanthropy ought to be done. And they, they kind of set the, set the bar pretty high. But when the PC company was extracted from IBM, you know, we were very careful to um, you know, take the salespeople with us, take marketing people with us, take anybody who sort of worked in the core PC business with us over to Lenovo. And uh, the thing, the problem with that is that we sort of left all those sort of higher corporate functions like sports sponsorships, and boy, we really needed that. Sports sponsorships and, uh, and philanthropy and things like that behind. So nobody really, and this is where I got so lucky, right? I was uh, lucky to sort of be in the right place at the right time, and I had had some experiences with nonprofits in, in my life, and uh, um, so I sort of raised my hand and said, I think we need some, uh, to somebody to take care of corporate philanthropy, and by the way, I'll do that for you. So it's like the... I was in the kingdom of the blind, and I was the one-eyed man, so I got to be king. Um, so that, but it's been a real challenge ever since then, because uh, companies our size, a $16, 17000000000 billion company, you usually have you know, teams of people doing this. And basically, it's, it's mostly just me. You know, Dell has, uh, our competitor has an entire uh, department dedicated just to environmental marketing. I'm not talking about actually doing well for the environment. I'm talking about marketing the fact that they're doing well for the environment. They have an entire department. I have to do all that, right? So yeah, it's, execution uh, and implementation has been a real challenge. I've been trying to focus in on things that I can do um, just between myself and sort of the skunk works of other people and entrepreneurship is it. I've depended largely on, on partners to, to execute and get things done. Yes, uh, internationally, can you speak to uh, any observations with regards to um, the acceptance in the corporate world of corporate social responsibility? Maybe, uh, I'm not sure if you have a perspective on that. Well, it's certainly uh, the acceptance of corporate social responsibility as, a, as an important discipline is sure growing, um, as evidenced by the fact that, and I think caused by the fact that, that you people are far more interested in it now. And, maybe even making uh, you know, uh, purchasing choices based on, uh, on that kind of thing. So it's really, um, you know, when I started this um, back in uh, 2000, I guess it was 2006, um, this trend really hadn't hit the sort of the, the hockey stick place where it is now. Um, so it, you know, back in the, in the beginning, I was running around trying to convince people that this was a good idea. Now they're coming to me with their ideas. So it's really changed a lot, and I'm thankful for that. Make, make them not be so challenging. Okay. Okay. <laughs> First of all, with your mother, you mentioned she grew up that environment. Uh, where did she go and how did she support herself? That's the first question. 
Wow. I mean, that's a, where'd my mother go to support herself and what is Lenovo doing to, wow. Um, I am going to politely decline to answer the first question um, for reasons that may, may be obvious. I, mean, I just don't want to, um, to expose a lot of her personal life um, to, to Julia um, <laughs> and others who may meet her. Uh, the second question, it's a very, um, we kind of have a rigorous process that we put in place to, to decide. Um, it has to be strategically important. Uh, the partnership, um, uh, it has to be relevant to, to what we're trying to accomplish. Um, but I tell you, we get you know, uh, 50 or 60 or 70 proposals in the door that you know, people have given applications for, um, for every one that we actually do. Although, with one exception, um, we, do, we did put a program in place that um, is, is designed to encourage and reward uh, social entrepreneurship among our employees. So, for example, the handful of employees who have started their own nonprofits, who are responding in sort of a new way. A great example is, uh, if any of you are runners, there's something coming up called the Miracle Mile. It was invented by a, a, a Lenovo employee whose wife has um, uh, something related to Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, who is a great, and she was a great runner, right? But prior to this, she actually won the North Carolina series of, uh, of distance running. Um, but now she's, you know, wheelchair bound. And in, in response to that, he and his wife started this, the, this race, this foundation, to, to raise money for, for the disease. So that's the kind of thing that Lenovo is really looking for and wants to encourage and support. So we've set up a fund through the Triangle Community Foundation to identify and to fund things that our employees are, are, are doing. I think it's just a way of, of uh, building more social entrepreneurship in the company. Uh, to have the type of career that I'm having, you have to be really, really lucky, as I said. Um, I didn't mean to do this. Um, there was really, it, there was, uh, when I was here, there, there was no case, of course. I don't think there was any net impact or whatever the predecessor was, at least not, not a chapter here. And if there was, people who were in it were kind of weird. They were, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, I look around, so look at all of you. This is, there, there might have been a half dozen people who were interested in this kind of thing. So there was no real easy career path for people who wanted to do it. People like me have sort of, uh, um, you know, been lucky to do it. Um, for you, though, I guess what, what I try to tell everybody is that going into corporate social responsibility is kind of an interesting thing to do. But really, if this is all going to work, you have to have people who are interested in the company being socially responsible throughout the organization. So don't worry about the fact that you may have to first take a job in marketing or finance or, or human resources or something else. Um, your passion, especially if you do um, uh, approach your career correctly, uh, and instead of trying to climb a ladder, you try to get to the place where you, you, uh, you will be invigorated and, and you want to be, you'll get there someday. Um, and it'll probably be sooner rather than later these days where uh, you know, everybody's trying to build their competence in corporate social responsibility. So yeah, I, I'm thinking it might be great to go take a CSR job that's posted on uh, the Net Impact website or something like that, but I think it's a better idea to have that impact in the, the midst of the rest of the organization. Take a job and make that job what you want it to be. Um, some people will tell you, and this is a, uh, uh, I think this is a stunning thing, that uh, outside of the CSR discipline, um, by the, I, I would encourage you not to get sort of pigeonholed into a CSR ghetto somewhere in some company. Instead, um, you know, practice CSR elsewhere. Some people will tell you that 
a company, you can't let a company go out of business. You can't let your company go out of business by being socially responsible. You know, the, the, the message there is we have to make money first and then we can be socially responsible, which I think is just total baloney. Because if a company can't make money without being, you know, degrading the environment, using child labor, then that company actually does not deserve to exist. So a company should indeed go out of business being socially responsible if, the, if the, that's going to be the ultimate result. Probably didn't answer your question, but I got on my soapbox, so I'm happy. I don't know about you. <laughs> Anyone else? Oh, jeez. I hate this question. <laughs> Go on. Well, just in general, you know, how have you been able 100,000 entrepreneurs. We're measuring that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good, you did a great job with numbers, actually. Um, but how have you, has it been difficult to sort of negotiate that um, ability to, you know, basically measure sort of the intangible things that you are accomplishing? Yeah, nearly impossible. And um, I'll tell you that. Um, one of the best things I've been able to um, accomplish as far as measurements go is, um, you know, I'm in the marketing department, uh, actually. Um, I don't know how that happened, but I, I guess I was in marketing and then I created this job and so now I'm still in the marketing department. So the way we measure success is probably very different than the way that uh, um, maybe a traditional CSR uh, function might. Um, we try to look at how it's being, its impact on our brand, right? That's, that's the way that, uh, that's what's important to us um, in the marketing department. It's actually very important to Lenovo, right? Because we had this fantastic opportunity. Nobody knows who we are in 2004. Nobody's ever heard of us. So we can build a reputation based on the sort of those initial actions that uh, might actually become long lasting. So it's actually a great opportunity to do that. So I was actually glad and still am glad to be in the marketing department. But as far as ROI goes, I think we have uh, almost an unhealthy obsession with, uh, with ROI, especially in the area of you know, so, sort of supply chain and uh, environmental impact, where you don't really want, I think, you don't really want to be, there to be a return on the investment in sort of real tangible terms of being environmentally responsible, right? This, it, this implies, and I wrote a blog entry about this I want you to check out, about how we've been trying to say um, or pe we've been told that you can be responsible and make money. There are, there's a list of books out about how you and your personal life can live a green, sustainable life, and it's easy, right? And they all end with that. It's easy being green somehow. It's easy. And there's one that my favorite is um, how to live a sustainable lifestyle and still get rich, which I think is, is really bizarre, right? Because what is your motivation for wanting to live a sustainable lifestyle? It probably isn't to get rich, right? Um, and why does it have to be easy? If it's really important, then it really shouldn't be easy. And I've got news for you. It's going to take more than changing twisted to twisty light bulbs to save the planet, right? That's not going to do it. It's going to take radical changes in the way we do business and in the way we live our lives to have an actual sustainable world. If that's truly what we want, it's not going to be easy. There's not going to be anything easy about it. It's going to require a lot of investment and a lot of non-traditional investment that uh, won't have the ROI that I, I think some of us are looking for. Some companies won't put in high-efficiency air conditioners if the payoff or the payback for that is more than three or four years, right? 
Um, I just think that's insane. If it's the right thing, to, if it's a good idea, if it's socially responsible to put in high efficiency air conditioning units in your, in your uh, operations, then that's what you've got to do regardless of whether or not it's cost. Now, we can argue about whether that's a good decision, about whether high efficiency air conditioning units are, are worth their expense or how, whether they actually have any good impact uh, or if that impact is enough. But if we do come to the conclusion that we should do that, we can't be looking at ROI all the time. We can't be looking at payback. And I know somebody's going to say, but don't you have a fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders to make sure that you maximize your profits? And, and that's a real narrow view. And thank God it's changing because of people like you. Another soapbox. And probably didn't answer your question again. Uh, just a question to piggyback on what my classmate was speaking about. I feel like you do have to judge ROI, even if it's just a social ROI. Yeah. Like for every dollar that you invest, you have to have some idea of its impact, whether that's in the business world or whether it's in the social world. And if it is in the social world, we have to be better at determining or showing our shareholders, well, we've got this economic output, but we also have the social output. Yeah. Um, we do, you know, so just to be clear, you know, we do do that. Uh, we certainly measure the social uh, impact as much as it's possible to measure. Um, I guess I've been in marketing long enough to really, um, uh, one thing we measure is our brand impact, the, the impact of, of, of our brand, on our brand reputation of these things. And, and really, from when we started, the connection between the Lenovo brand and the ThinkPad brand and social responsibility has gone from something like 11% to 60%. Um, so we've done very well in, in that respect. And I think that's good, and I think it's necessary, and I love my company for you know, wanting to do that. Um, but I, I'm with you. I think we need to measure, be more um, interested in the social impact. And we have, at best, sort of anecdotal stories about how Jennifer, you know, how Jennifer has done as a result of, uh, of what we've uh, given her, what we've been able to provide her. Um, and you know, other entrepreneurs who won business plan competitions. There's a woman in Harlem who won a business plan competition we held there. And she went from, uh, again, being on the brink of poverty, to having six locations of her, of her store in New York City. So that's, that's a very good impact. But when you sort of collect all that together, it's not going to, um, it's really not going to be an accurate measurement of everything that you've done. And I'm kind of comfortable with that amb ambiguity. I know that if I were at a stockholder meeting right now, maybe that uh, this wouldn't go over so well. But uh, I'm comfortable with the fact that we're building our brand, we are making good commitments, we're being socially responsible, and we're having impact on 100,000 people. Anyone else? Thanks.